Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Just to place the Gospel reading again in its context, we're at the 22nd chapter of Matthew. There are 28 chapters in Matthew's Gospel, and these last six chapters are concerning the last week in Jesus' life. So we're getting to the crucial, pivotal part in the life of Christ when he is betrayed Uh, crucified and then resurrected. We have uh, heard about the triumphal entry. He has come in in triumph on the back of a donkey to the proclamations of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's been acclaimed as David's son. He's come in and he's cleaned all of the tax collectors, all of the people in the temple who are exchanging money, the money changers, and he has overturned all of those saying, uh, it has been said that this will be a house of prayer. And then we've uh, seen that interchange between him and the religious elite who've come up to him and saying, in the context of the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, what authority? On what authority are you doing this? And who gave you that authority? And of course, he's not answered them directly because they wouldn't answer him his question about by whose authority John the Baptist had been doing his ministry. But the last three Sundays, we've actually seen his response to them, not directly, but through parable. He's told three parables, and each parable kind of mounts and mounts and mounts in energy so that we saw the two sons, which of the two sons, who's going to be able to come into the kingdom of heaven. And then we heard about the wicked tenants, and then we get introduced to the son who is killed, the son of the vineyard owner. And then last week we looked at the parable of the wedding banquet. Again, sonship. God, the owner, has prepared a wedding feast for the wedding of his son. And those in authority, those originally invited have not come, have not followed through on the invitation. So by the end of that parable, we hear the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. You see, by the end of that third parable, they knew, surely, by whose authority Jesus thought he was doing these things and who he was. He was God's son, and he was doing them because God gave him the authority to do them. And so they go and try and entrap him. Now remember that the Pharisees are the purity sect, and Jesus takes them to task for this, because in trying to keep everything pure, they're excluding people who should be brought in to be made whole. And so they've set up these incredibly high barriers that truthfully nobody can attain to. So they hold to a very, very rigid religiosity. 
and in doing so are excluding others. Um, you know, they tie this and that and the other, and, 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 but Jesus says that they don't honor their parents. They tithe mint and cumin. They, they, they weigh that out so that it's exact, but they're not honoring their parents. They're not completely fulfilling the law. Well, they're getting together with the Herodians. Well, you have to realize the Herodians are in bed with Rome, the conquerors, the overseers, those who were oppressing all of Israel. Herod, King Herod, only has his authority because he's basically no more than a vassal to the Roman conquerors, to the Roman Caesar, to the empire. But they so determined to try and trick Jesus the Pharisees and the religious elite, that they'll even go and get together with the hated Herodians to try and trick Jesus, to entrap him in what he said. And the understatement there is entrapping him. He's going to be handed over to the authorities and they'll deal with him. They'll kill him. And so they, they're very clever, actually. They've come up with a ploy that they think is going to work because there's a hated tax, sometimes called the poll tax or the tribute tax. And every country where Rome has gone and conquered have to pay this tribute. It's how they pay their soldiers. It's how they pay for roads to be done. So in actual fact, these conquered people are required to pay back, to continue to pay the legionnaires, the soldiers, who are going to continue to oppress them. So it's truly a hated tax. In fact, when Jesus was a child, there was a Jew called Judas who rose up, had a whole revolt going on with lots of people to try and overthrow Rome, the Roman conquerors, precisely because of the tribute tax. They were... Uh, they didn't succeed. They were overthrown. And of course, as they did, the Romans crucified all of them. And so in that era, it would have been known that all the way around Jerusalem were crosses with Judas and his followers on them. In other words, to say anything against the tribute tax was seen as sedition and then you would die on a cross for that sedition. So that's how much the Romans regarded this tax and anybody who would say anything about it. Not only that, there was a special coin to pay the tax. And the coin was a denarius worth three days worth of work for a a legionnaire. And it had printed on it the head of the Caesar, in this case Tiberius Caesar. So his image is on there and around the coin is written Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the deified Augustus, chief priest. In other words, Tiberius Caesar is the son of Augustus Caesar. Remember Augustus Caesar from the nativity of our Lord. And Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So by the time that after Augustus died, they're deifying him. They're making him into a god, small g, 
Um, they're making Augustus a god, which now makes Tiberius Caesar God's son. And then we have the terminology chief priest, all terms that we're familiar with as far as Christ is concerned. Tiberius Caesar is also down the road, they're not even saying that they're the son of God, they're claiming as they're alive that they are God's living. So for a religious uh, elite, for a Pharisee, who wants to keep the religion pure, to even handle such a coin would be idolatrous because it's got an image on there of somebody who claims to be a son of God and a priest. And we know from the Old Testament that Jews are not allowed to make any kind of images of God at all. So they're not supposed to handle them. So they've come up. They know they've got Jesus in a double bind. Because if he answers their question about whether or not it's lawful to pay this tax, if he answers them that no, they're not, they can hand him over to the authorities to be crucified. If he says, yes, okay, you can pay it, then all of the people who have been following him will stop following him. He won't have anybody believing in him anymore because Messiah has come to overthrow the oppressor. And if he just feels that it's okay to pay the tax, well, they're not going to follow him. He's in a complete double bind. They think they've got him. But his response is so amazing that at the end of this exchange, when they heard his response, they were amazed and they left and went away. So what is his response? Well, first of all, they come up to him. Um, It's very, uh, I, I hear this kind of slimy, slithery voice as they're asking this. Teacher, we know that you're sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. All of this a true statement. It's completely true about Jesus. He shows no partiality, but they're saying it. To, uh, to, to smooth the path for what they're now going to ask. But Jesus is wise to them, of course. He knows exactly what the ploy is. He knows what they're trying to do. And so he says, why are you putting me to the test? You hypocrites. And just why are they hypocrites, how are they hypocrites, is shown in the very next question that Jesus poses to them because he asks them for a coin. He asks them for a denarius. He's not got one on him, but they produce one. The religious elite, the pure, they're not supposed to even touch this thing, but they can readily bring one out of their robes. Right there, they're hypocrites. They're supposed to be God-fearers. In fact, many people would ask other people to pay the tax so that they didn't have to handle the coinage. But they produce one for Jesus. And so he says, whose image is on the coin and whose title is on it? And so they say the emperor's or they say Caesar's. 
And so here's his response. Give, therefore, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and give to God the things that are God's. See, the whole story pivots on that word image. It's icon in the original language. An icon is a representation, a a very close representation of the thing that it represents, icon. And that's the pivot of the story right there. Whose image is on there? It's the emperor's. So give the emperor what is his. We used to say, uh, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. In other words, there's a sense of not just giving, but giving back to Caesar what he's given. N.T. Wright makes the translation, you better pay Caesar back in his own coin then. I think that's rather good. You better pay Caesar back in his own coin then. The point of the story is not how we're to relate to government authority, although there's some in that. The story is to highlight the fact that in actual fact, the pure religious elite are idolatrous. They are hypocrites because they say with their mouth that they're God-fearing, that God is above all, and yet they're showing forth that actually the most important thing in their life is their own power and prestige. Caesar's kingdom will be overcome. It won't be overcome by the sword, however. It will be overcome by Jesus laying down his life. It's not about whether or not uh, see, we're to acknowledge Caesar, we're acknowledge governments. It's about who is in charge of our lives. And it pivots on that word image. Because that takes us back to the Genesis story. It takes us back to Genesis 1, the very beginning of our scriptures. In the image of God, he created them Male and female, he created them. The denarius coin was stamped, was minted with Caesar's image. Whose image do we bear? We're minted in God's image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. We're formed in the image of God. And so when Jesus says, give therefore to the emperor this coin, just give that, but give to God the things that are God's and the things that are minted in God's image that are coined in the likeness of God is every one of us. Each of us has been made in the image of God. And so we're to give back to God everything, all of who we are. We come into this world with nothing. All that we accumulate is from God's generous hand. All that we have as far as skill, as far as mind, as far as just our entire being has been given to us 
at the hand of a God who is lavishly generous, who loves even those who are his enemies, so much so that in that love he shows forth the love by giving up life so that we might live. That's the generosity of God in whose image we have been made. We are formed in the image of the God who forgives, who erases wrongs through the blood of his Son. If paying back in the same coin to Caesar means to give him the coinage that is minted with his image, what does it mean to pay back to God in the same coin the things that are God's? What does it mean to pay back to God in the same coin the things that are God's? It means that all of our lives are his. Everything that we are. All that we have. All that we are, that's God's. He's given it to us. We're to give back to God what he's given to us, what he's minted, what he's formed. He's formed each and every one of us uniquely. And we come and we lay that back to him. We give back to God all of our things, all of us, everything that we are. Except, amazingly, he only asks for 10% of our, of our finances. And he says, you get to keep 90% of that. But when we lay ourselves down, when we lay who we are down, he gives it back to us. But he gives it back to us so that we're filled once again with him. And so what we receive back after we've laid it down is so much more than we had before we laid it down. And that's true for all of our life. Everything about us, when we give it over to God, he delights in returning it a hundredfold. So much more. This is what's happened to the church in Thessalonica. Paul has gone. He's preached the word of Jesus Christ, died, risen for their life, for eternal life. And they've been on fire. They've heard the gospel and they've known the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's gone deep inside of who they are. So much so that their lives now are images of God's life, of Christ in them. Because Paul writes to them and says, in every place throughout Macedonia, every place your faith in God has become known. So that we have no need to speak about it. We don't need to preach the gospel anywhere. You're a living gospel. You've given your lives over to God. You've made in God's image. You've taken in the gospel message. You've given your lives over to God. And now it's known because you're living God's will. You're living God's ways. We don't need to preach the gospel. You're it living out into for miles around in all of Macedonia. It was known about these Thessalonians. They were worshipping 
the one true God. Their faith was bringing their wills into alignment with God's will so that they exhibited deep love, so that they lived with hope, so that they lived forgiving. They were the image of God into the world. May the same be said of us. May we truly be God image bearers. May we love even the unlovable. May we forgive even the unforgivable. May we exhibit the same kind of lavish generosity with all of who we are and all of what we have, with all that we've received at the loving hand of God. And Jesus says to us, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, but render to God the things that are God's, our very selves. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.